As you can tell from our social media and our email blasts and things like that, I am excited about today's topic because I think it's just pivotal in today's world, whether we're talking commercially, whether we're talking military, uh, geopolitical stress, all of that stuff comes back to, uh, it's, it's just fascinating. Dr. Ch uh, Chris Miller has written a book and a lot of it was just absolutely news to me. Uh, talking about chip wars, the chip manufacturing. It's, I call it the must-read book, as I've said on the air before. Uh, chip wars, the fight for the world's most critical technology. Uh, Chris Miller is an associate professor of international history, where his research focuses on technology, geopolitics, economics, international affairs, and Russia, as well as the author of three other acclaimed books uh, on Russia, especially Plutonomics, which I've read, uh, Power and Money, and the Resurgent uh, Russia, but this one I think is the capper. I mean, it's grabbed the entire you know literary world, the sort of academic world, historical world, uh, absolutely by the throat. And the reviews have been nothing short of spectacular. And I'm so glad that Dr. Chris Miller takes time to join us here today. Chris, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me. Now, the name of the book is you know Chip Wars: The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Why do you call it the world's most critical technology? Because I think that will be news to a lot of people, especially in a world that we're sort of watching energy shortages uh, grind some parts of society to a halt. Well, most people never really think much about semiconductors or computer chips as they're more commonly known, but we rely on them for almost all aspects of our daily life. It's not just your smartphone or your computer that has chips inside. Almost every device with an on-off switch does, whether it's your dishwasher or a coffee maker or cars, which will have dozens and in some cases hundreds of chips inside of them. So the modern economy can't function without chips and therefore threats to the production of chips and our access to the semiconductors we need is a really dire threat uh, to the stability of our economies. And again, it's one of those things that I think people take for granted. They're not aware of it. Uh, you know, I, I can't think of anything I don't have a chip in, if you know what I mean, from my everyday life, whether I'm going to watch a television show, you know, in my smart TV. Obviously, today we're using computers. Uh, everybody listening will use, I, I bet, will use a cell phone, an iPhone or, a, you know, a Samsung or what have you. And it's the development that the book does such a great job. And I want to say, I, I mean, I will not do justice to this. The book reads like a thriller with a ton of great information. You know, it's absolutely compelling reading. Uh, going back to the history, uh, the people involved in the history and things you'll recognize, you know, Gordon Moore, I'm thinking, I remember Moore's Law when it was introduced. And that's how old I am, as you can see. But uh, as Moore's Law was introduced, you know, the doubling of that sort of processing power. And man, that's come to fruition. Remember at the time it was like, what? You know, <laughs> and give us an example of how far that technology has come. Well, the first chip that was commercially available in the early 1960s had four transistors on it. And transistor is a little electronic circuit that turns on and off that produces the ones and zeros undergirding all software. So the first chip had four transistors. Today, if you buy a new iPhone, the primary chip on the iPhone, which there are actually many chips, has 15 billion transistors on it. So from four to 15 billion is the trajectory over the past 60 years or so. And it's, it's that in, uh, increase in the number of transistors per chip that has made computing so powerful today and also so inexpensive that we're able to put it in all manner of devices. Uh, and it's incredible that, I mean, the origins are not the origins, but the first applications were military. And then, uh, you know, the commercialization, as the book describes, 
But now we're back to some military concerns, obviously. Uh, I remember the 19, uh, you know, the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and, uh, you know, being amazed. We were watching it on TV and watching the so-called smart bombs being able to target a single window. And I remember all the technology there, or rather all the weaponry there, shocked people at the time. Like we weren't aware. And again, it, as the book makes clear, it comes back to the chip technology. Uh, like, uh, and again, I, I'm only saying that, you know, because I don't, don't think people appreciate the applications here. Um, whether it's a, a we talk, we've talked a lot on this show about self-driving vehicles, you know, and again, all of that development's going to be thanks to, you know, the processing power. Uh, as I say, the list just goes on. I'm going to get on a plane uh, this week and, oh my gosh, without that power, I don't, you know, we're going down. So I, I guess that's what I'm talking about. But the relevance seems to be much higher, you know, in the supply chain problems. We started to hear, oh, the auto manufacturing can't get chips. Oh, there go, we're going to lay. I remember all the major manufacturing had to shut down manufacturing because they couldn't get computer chips. Mm-hmm. So that, that's right. I mean, again, it's just, it's within that context that people, I mean, your book is so timely that people have sort of finally maybe become a little more aware. And uh, sorry, go no, ahead. That's, that's absolutely right. And I think the, the supply chain shocks of the last year have uh, helped people understand just how reliant they are on chips. I think what people still don't understand is how reliant they are on chips produced in a very small number of locations. And it surprises yep. most people to know that 90% of the world's most advanced ships are produced in one island, Taiwan, and can't be produced anywhere else in the world. Well, which, of course, makes it so compelling why Taiwan is in the news on almost a daily basis. I mean, earlier this week, we had uh, them scrambling some fighter jets because the, uh, you know China was sending uh, into their airspace, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a very hot button topic that I think, other than Ukraine war, that's got to be right there on the, on the burner with it. And of course, again, you come back to the chips, as you say. I mean, they've got one major company, uh, TSMC, that seems to you know, just dominate the sophisticated chip world. That's right. And today, Taiwan not only produces 90% of the most advanced processor chips, but it also produces over one third of the new computing power the world adds each year. So we think of tech as being about Silicon Valley or about big Chinese technology companies like Alibaba. But in reality, uh, most of the semiconductors that we're relying on, most of the chips and all sorts of computing systems and data centers come from Taiwan. It's an irreplaceable supplier of the chips we depend on. Well, that's obviously got to up the political tension, you know, and the political stakes that we're involved with right now. Is that what the focus do you think is at, at this point? I mean, they may not come out and say Nancy Pelosi may not come out and go, well, we're actually worried about that chip manufacturing, especially the most sophisticated chips, if you said. But that's really underlying that the tensions there that the Western world cannot allow uh, Chinese interference there. Well, it's a big issue. And as China's military power in East Asia grows, and it's grown pretty steadily over the past several decades, the ability of China to threaten access to Taiwan's uh, chip production has grown alongside it. And the, the irony and the risk is that actually it's been largely Western produced chips, uh, chips that are designed in the U.S. or produced in the U.S. or Japan or Europe or elsewhere that have enabled many of the advances in China's military. And one of the interesting parts of the Russia-Ukraine war that has come to the fore, and this is true for Russia as well as China, is the extent to which uh, adversaries' military systems have 
our chips inside. So if you look at the open source studies done of Russian missiles that have uh, been uh, captured uh, having, after having landed in Ukraine and take apart their guidance computers, they're full of chips made in the US or South Korea uh, or Taiwan. And until recently, the the Western countries have really struggled to uh, control access of foreign militaries to these ships. Well, and as Chip Wars makes very clear, and the U.S. had a dominant position in this. This is pre-Taiwan or just, you know, as they started to ship some uh, production into Taiwan. But the U.S. was dominant and dominant, it seemed like, for a, a very long time. And that, am I correct in saying it's lost that dominance? It certainly isn't the major producer of chips in the world. And yet that seems to have got both Republican and Democrats seem to be a little more alert to this than they ever were about energy, you know, shortages. But uh, they seem a little more alert recently, at least in August with the CHIP Act and that kind of stuff. Uh, And I guess I'm just trying to explain to people, and and this is why they should read the book, uh, because we can't do it justice here, is the world is revolving around this. You know, the stories they're reading and the tensions they're feeling geopolitical are coming back to the importance of chips and supply chains and all the things we've been introduced to more likely, you know, since COVID. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And, and governments around the world are, are focused now more on semiconductors than at any point in the past uh, decade or two. It's not just the US, actually. It's Japan, it's Europe, uh, it's India. All sorts of governments are trying to reduce their reliance on China and Taiwan uh, and to ensure simultaneously that they know that the chips their companies are producing aren't going to uh, foreign governments, militaries. And if you look at the newest round of restrictions the U.S. has placed on the transfer of chip technology to China, it's all about military systems. And and the challenge is this, is that everyone knows that China is going to produce more ships, more planes, more drones and more missiles uh, than the U.S. and the Western Pacific. And even if you add together the U.S. and Japan and Australia and other countries that have major military presence uh, in Asia, China is going to produce more in quantitative terms. So the question is, how are the U.S. and its friends going to keep their advantage in qualitative terms, keep systems that are more capable uh, than their adversaries? And the way that we've done this in the past is by applying computing power to military systems. So think, for example, what differentiates a fighter jet produced 50 years ago from a fighter jet produced today? Well, it's not that it flies faster. It's not that it's designed that much differently. The key differentiating factor is computing power. It's got smarter computers, smarter sensors, not only in the jet itself, but in all the other systems it's talking with, its munitions, its satellites, it's an entire network on the battlefield. And the US is betting that if it's able to keep its semiconductor advantage uh, vis-a-vis China, it can apply this gap in computing power to military systems and thereby offset China's quantitative advantage with qualitative uh, advantages provided by computing. So that's the key to U.S. strategy today. And it's not just about chips or tech, it's about military power. And hence the subtitle of the book, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Uh, I mean, the world is obviously people's top of mind is the geopolitical conflicts going on today. And as you mentioned, alluded to a moment ago, uh, you know, a lot of people have been wondering why the Russians hadn't been more successful and, you know, it seems to me from reading Chip Wars that it really comes back to this lack of technology or, you know, the lack of sophistication vis-a-vis what the West could apply. I mean, they don't have the weapons and that means they don't have the processing. That's right. That's right. And the Russians have really struggled. They're far behind where the Chinese are in terms of chip making uh, technology. China's made a lot of strides over the past decade in 
catching up to the cutting edge. It's still behind, um, but it's made some real advances. And one of the advantages that China has is because its electronics industry is so integrated with the rest of the world because smartphones and PCs are largely assembled in China, for example, it's got a lot of leverage over companies to pressure them to transfer technology, whereas Russia never had that. So it's remained far further behind than the Chinese. It is interesting. I mean, with the, uh, at the outset, as Chip Wars explains, you know, it was sort of a military issue, you know, uh, dealing with the military. And then the commercialization aspect came into it. And it was really the commercialization, it seems, from reading the book that, uh, you know, supercharged the advancements, I guess. Yeah, I, I'd put it that way. And I'm, I'm just fascinated, as you say, as Russia didn't have that, China does have some of those applications, you know. So, uh, you know, that's what becomes so prominent. But how successful can we be? Can the West be? Can the U.S. be? Can other Western nations be in sort of slowing down that Chinese advance to maintain that technological advantage when it comes to military, especially? Well, the U.S. has been really ramping up its controls on the transfer of chips and also chip making tools to China over the past five or so years. And the challenge that China faces is that although it can design pretty advanced chips in China and it can also produce relatively advanced chips in China, when it produces those chips, China, like every other chip making facility in the world, relies on machine tools that are produced by just a couple of companies in just three countries, the US, Japan, and the Netherlands have basically a monopoly over the machine tools needed to make chips. And these are the most precise machine tools ever made. They're able to move materials at just the atomic level on pieces of silicon, carve uh, tiny trenches or make tiny patterns in uh, semiconductors, which is what you need to make uh, chips with transistors the size of a coronavirus, which is exactly the transistors we rely on in our uh, smartphones or PCs. So this is ultra complex machinery, and it's going to be very, very difficult for China to domesticate its production of this machinery. Uh, and now it can't buy many of these crucial types of machines because of US restrictions. So China faces is a long, expensive slog ahead of it as it tries to find ways to produce domestically machines it used to buy from abroad. Well, I, an example uh, how that uh, is so important is that, you know, a lot of talk about, you know, I mean, Xi Jinping uh, at the end of their Communist Party Congress has, talks about Taiwan again and says, you know, don't interfere with us. And it, somebody there put military action on the table, at least. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying the probability, but that's been alluded to a few times. And I'm thinking, well, the Chinese can't afford not to have Taiwan either. You know, they can't afford to destroy these. They're relying, I mean, when 90% of the most advanced uh, chips are getting made out of Taiwan, I, I'm just wondering, am I wrong on that? I was, I, I've been wondering, because how could the Chinese afford to have any uh, disruption to that aspect too for their economy? Yeah, it's true that a disruption of Taiwan's chip making capabilities would be disastrous in economic terms for China. Um, but it's also true that over the past couple of years, China's begun to de-emphasize economic issues relative to its geopolitical interests. And I worry about relying too much on the theory of mutually assured economic destruction providing peace. I think that sounds a little bit too much like Angela Merkel's energy policy, which hasn't worked out very well this year. And when you look at Xi Jinping's focus over the past couple of years, it's been less on the economy, less on growth, and much more on his own political and ideological goals. And so I... I hope it's right that China's afraid to attack Taiwan because of the economic costs, but I don't think we should be relying too heavily on that assumption because it looks less sturdy than in the past. Well, and, and so much evidence for that in, in terms of, uh, you know, the whole 
process after Nixon went to China was that we will liberalize with China as they get more you know, economic development along the lines. We integrate with the World uh, Trade Organization, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think that's proven to be absolutely dead wrong. And uh, I don't have to have a China expertise. You have an expertise in that area and in Russia, of course. But I don't think I have to go too far when I look at they couldn't have cared less what the international reaction was to taking over Hong Kong, you know, against international okay. treaties. I, okay. I think that's a, a huge warning. I mean, it's, it's the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night if you start thinking about this stuff. Well, that's right. I think most of us uh, who don't live in the Asia Pacific region think of Taiwan as an island that's far away and maybe not that important to our daily lives. But the reality is that none of the electronics you rely on uh, could have functional supply chains without Taiwanese produced chips. It would be almost impossible to build a smartphone in the year after uh, a war between China and Taiwan, simply because so many of the chips that smartphones rely on uh, come from Taiwan. And the same thing is true for PCs and data centers and all sorts of household appliances as well, to say nothing of autos and manufacturing in, in other sectors. So we're hugely reliant on Taiwanese produced chips in ways that most of us only dimly understand, but in ways that ought to make all of us very concerned about the, the security risks in the Taiwan Strait. Well, I just can't imagine modern manufacturing without, you know, if there was a problem in that area, let alone innovation. Uh, you know, on this show, we do a little thing, Chris, uh, called the shocking stat. Well, I, I kept on underlining shocking stats in chip wars. And I, I just want to come back to one. I know I'm digressing a little bit, but you had said earlier uh, about it's just not easy. It's just like Canada can't just sit there and go, guess what? We're going to have a chip industry you know, or some other country that's not involved at this point, because the manufacturing of the tech or the technology needed, the manufacturing, the precision of the manufacturing. And the one other thing, cost. I was blown away by the cost of, uh, you know, is it uh, ASML, you know, the Netherlands is the only producer of one of the most important pieces of machinery. And then the cost, my jaw dropped. I had to get a, a, a pad on the bottom because we are just talking hundreds of millions of dollars to set up any kind of a facility at this point. Yep, and the most advanced chip making facilities in Taiwan are the most expensive factories in human history. They cost $20 billion a piece. And inside of them, the machine tools you need to make chips are also the most expensive machine tools in human history, costing uh, up to $150 million a piece. So this is the most complex and expensive manufacturing process humans have ever undertaken. Well, the US is looking to shift some of that you know, some of the chip making into its its own borders. And I've seen some of the numbers out of the CHIP Act that was, uh, you know, signed off on in August. And I, I kept coming back to the book and thinking, well, what are you going to build? Half a factory? A third of a factory? You know, I, even though the numbers to us uh, are just astronomical, you know, getting thrown around, but that industry, and I think that's the relevance here, the industry is so expensive to develop that it's, I just not sure to the degree uh, it can have an impact on the geopolitical uh, potential tensions here. Yeah, I think that's right. The U.S. is going to spend $39 billion in the next five years or so on incentivizing more chip making in the U.S. And next to a $20 billion price tag for a large-scale new advanced facility, that money doesn't go very far. So it will have an impact on the margin, but I think you're right to say that it won't be revolutionary. And in five years' time, the whole world will still be quite reliant on Taiwan to produce the most advanced processor chips. But it's, it seems like a, a, a conflict, uh, whatever we want to call it, you know, the new Cold War. And there's many people who are calling it World War III. I mean, like credible academics saying this is where it's going to take place. It's not going to be, you know hand-to-hand -hand combat any longer. It's going to be 
in these kinds of things. And I, I would assume that the the CHIP Act, uh, the Biden administration got lots of Republican support for it too, though, is a reflection or an, uh, of that understanding that this that, is where, right. this is it. This is it, yeah. you know, we can't lose this one. That, that's right. And, and losing it is not just about economics or technology. As no. we said, it's about military power too. Uh, so when you look at the sort of approach being taken at this point, uh, does it give you confidence? It's nice to see it's part of a, an important, you know, it's become important focus, but past that, uh, you know, what are what are these measures going to do to China? You know, how are they? How are we stopping? You mentioned you're not allowed to send technology into them. You know, or the machine tools, that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, so they're clearly targeting China, targeting China's uh, advancement. They're saying no to that. So, how successful will they be, or what other areas should they look at? Well, I think part of the the challenge is going to be restricting the transfer technology to China, which is happening, as you say. But also part of the challenge is going to be to keep Moore's law progressing outside of China uh, in the U.S. and Japan and Taiwan and all the countries that make up the semiconductor supply chain. And that's where we've got to focus our efforts as well, because ultimately the reason why it's hard to catch up in chips, harder to catch up in almost any other industry is because progress is moving forward so rapidly. And so part of our task has got to be to keep technological progress moving forward rapidly, which in the process makes it very difficult for adversaries to catch up. Would that take place more at sort of a, a university research sort of level, or will it be the further commercialization? You know, I mean, Apple is the monster user of chips, for example. Uh, and we hear, again, we may not put the stories together. You may hear one off about chip development, or but innovation and manufacturing are not the same thing. Uh, That's right. So, yeah. Yeah, and we, we certainly have a key role that universities and basic science should play. But actually, the key challenge here is not the basic science. It's the high volume manufacturing. You know, it's one thing to make one ultra small transistor in a lab, but it's a very different thing to make, make them by the billions and billions with almost perfect accuracy day in and day out. And that's really the hard part about modern chip making. Uh, again, the book does a great job in relaying that. I'm just smiling because uh, I... I you know, it's just something I had not thought about, the level, level of perfection required, uh, you know, and right through to the manufacturing finished product, the level of perfection. And of course, that may explain some of the expense of those incredible machines that are getting made in one company only. You know, that's that's the other side to, you know, maybe, maybe if I'm Chinese, I, <laughs> excuse me, try and take them over, you know, because uh, it's just, it's a huge mind blowing thing. The numbers are huge. The stakes are bigger. Uh, you know, the innovation, if I catch up, and I, by the way, when you mention about, you know, China trying to catch up, because, of course, the bar is getting moved every day and through innovation, I feel the same way, uh, you know, trying to learn about it. But wait a second, I think I just learned about two years ago worth, you know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm already behind by a mile uh, when I come to this subject. And uh, that's what I so appreciative in, in reading the book that it helped me get some of that background. Now, some of the history is absolutely fascinating. And I uh, you know, as I said, it read like, like a novel, like an exciting novel, which I think is a brilliant piece of writing, but full of uh, facts, full of figures, giving me a foundation of which to start thinking about this industry. You know, and I underline that I'm starting thinking about one of the other things I came away with, though, is like Canada's never going to be a player in this industry. Like you can't play catch up here. Like we have to rely on the U.S., for example. Uh, you know, yeah, I, close I, neighbor. Yeah, I think that's right. For For countries that don't already have a big role, it's very hard to catch up and, and play a big role. Canada does actually have a uh, important chip design uh, industry uh, in and around uh, Toronto. 
um, it, it's it's small on the global scale, but it but it is uh, it is important. But you know, one of the key things about semiconductors is that no country can do it alone. Uh, the U.S. requires machine tools from Japan and the Netherlands and fabrication services in Taiwan. So there's really uh, no there's really no reason in thinking about any individual country's capabilities because you've got to have access to the entire international supply chain, which goes from Europe to North America to Japan, uh, South Korea, and Taiwan. And without all of those countries working together and all of their companies uh, collaborating, you can't produce advanced ships today. Are you optimistic um, uh, about the West being able to maintain its leadership in this area? You know, China, as we say, China will move, but will move farther. And obviously, there's now renewed efforts. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not aware of what they did in the past in this regard. It seemed that they were cooperating way too much. You know, with hindsight, I'm saying that. Yeah. But No, I think... Uh, Yep. I think you, there have been a lot of, uh, of, of major steps in the past couple of years that make me more optimistic uh, in the West's ability to keep its lead in this technology. It's not guaranteed. Uh, and I think anyone who is uh, complacent uh, has no justification for that complacency. But I think if you look at the trend lines, uh, they do go in, in the West's favor relative to China's. Well, and again, that's why I think the book is, is so important because this is a this is the battlefield. This is where our lives are going to be impacted. And I think we've just, just over the last couple of years started to get this inkling, inkling that oh, we don't really have a lot of economics going on here. Without you know, the economy grinds to a halt. Oh, the geopolitical tensions are now front and center. Supply chain you know issues. It just seems like the perfect time for the book uh, to come out. Uh, what have you found in, in terms of, like I say, this has been so brilliantly reviewed. Uh, have you found people come up to you and, you know, you're at Tufts University and they, they sort of, the light has gone on thanks to the book? Because that's my goal here. The goal is for the light to go on for people, get a hold of the book and read it because you really have, you won't know what's going on other than that. Um, yeah. But but yes, that's certainly my my goal of the book is to help people understand why this is the most critical technology that they've never really put much thought into before. Well, I got to thank you for doing the book because I found, as I say, it was illuminating, entertaining, which I think is a miracle, by the way, entertaining and, and illuminating. But it's a must understand subject, uh, Chris. It's a, and you've done a brilliant job with Chip Wars uh, in bringing that to people's attention. Uh, you know, it's the world's most critical technology. And I think we all better know about it. And thank you for your efforts in this direction. And I so appreciate you finding time for us in a busy schedule. Well, thanks so much for having me.